Chapter 12 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I now parted with very many of my friends for the last time. Most of the members of that large company now sleep in death. Their waking ears no longer to be filled with the death-telling yell of the savage. The manly hearts that shrunk from no danger have ceased to beat. Their bones whiten in the gloomy fastness of the Rocky Mountains or molder on the ever-flowing prairies of the far west. A cloven skull is all that remains of my once gallant friends to tell the bloody death that they died and invoke vengeance on the merciless hand that struck them down in their ruddy youth. Here I parted from the boy Baptiste, who had been my faithful companion so long. I never saw him again. The party that I started with consisted of 31 men, most of them skillful trappers. Captain Bridger was in our party and commanded by Robert Campbell. We started for Powder River, a fork of the Yellowstone, and arriving there without accident, were soon busied in our occupation. A circumstance occurred in our encampment on this stream, trivial in itself, for trivial events sometimes determine the course of a man's life, but which led to unexpected results. I had set my six traps overnight, and on going to them the following morning, I found four beavers, but one of my traps was missing. I sought it in every direction, but without success, and on my return to camp mentioned the mystery. Captain Bridger, as skillful a hunter as ever lived in the mountains, offered to renew the search with me, expressing confidence that the trap could be found. We searched diligently along the river and the bank for a considerable distance. But the trap was among the missing. The float pole also was gone. A pole ten or twelve feet long and four inches thick. We at length gave it up as lost. The next morning, the whole party moved farther up the river. To shorten our route, Bridger and myself crossed the stream at the spot where I had set my missing trap. It was a buffalo crossing, and there was a good trail worn in the banks so that we could easily cross with our horses. After passing and traveling on some two miles, I discovered what I supposed to be a badger, and we both made a rush for him. On closer inspection, however, it proved to be my beaver, with trap, chain, and float pole. It was apparent that some buffalo in crossing the river had become entangled in the chain and, as we conceived, had carried the trap on his shoulder with the beaver pendant on one side and the pole on the other. We inferred that he had in some way got his head under the chain between the trap and the pole and, in his endeavors to extricate himself, 
had pushed his head through. The hump on his back would prevent it passing over his body, and away he would speed with his burden, probably urged forward by the four sharp teeth of the beaver, which would doubtless object to his sudden equestrian, or rather bovine, journey. We killed the beaver and took his skin, feeling much satisfaction at the solution of the mystery. When we arrived at camp, we asked our companions to guess how and where we had found the trap. They all gave various guesses, but failing to hit the truth, gave up the attempt. Well, gentlemen, said I, it was stolen. Stolen, exclaimed a dozen voices at once. Yes, it was stolen by a buffalo. Oh, come now, said one of the party. What is the use of coming here and telling such a lie? I saw in a moment that he was angry and in earnest, and I replied, If you deny that a buffalo stole my trap, you tell the lie. He rose and struck me a blow with his fist. It was my turn now, and the first pass I made brought my antagonist to the ground. On rising, he sprang for his gun. I assumed mine as quickly. The bystanders rushed between us and seizing our weapons, compelled us to discontinue our strife, which would have infallibly resulted in the death of one. My opponent mounted his horse and left the camp. I never saw him afterward. I could have taken his expression in jest, for we were very free in our sallies upon one another. But in this particular instance, I saw his intention was to insult me and I allowed my passion to overcome my reflection. My companions counseled me to leave camp for a few days until the ill-feeling should have subsided. The same evening, Captain Bridger and myself started out with our traps, intending to be gone three or four days. We followed up a small stream until it forked, when Bridger proposed that I should take one fork and he the other and the one who had set his traps first should cross the hill which separated the two streams and rejoin the other. Thus we parted, expecting to meet again in a few hours. I continued my course up the stream in pursuit of beaver villages until I found myself among an innumerable drove of horses, and I could plainly see they were not wild ones. The horses were guarded by several of their Indian owners, or horse guards as they term them, who had discovered me long before I saw them. I could hear their signals to each other, and in a few moments I was surrounded by them, and escape was impossible. I resigned myself to my fate. If they were enemies, I knew they could kill me but once, and to attempt to defend myself would entail inevitable death. I took the chances between death and mercy. I surrendered my gun, traps, and what else I had, and was marched to camp under a strong escort of horse guards. I felt very sure that my guards were crows. Therefore, I did not feel greatly alarmed at my situation. On arriving at their village, I was ushered into the chief's lodge, where there were several old men and women whom I conceived to be members of the family. 
My capture was known throughout the village in five minutes, and hundreds gathered around the lodge to get a sight of the prisoner. In the crowd were some who had talked to Greenwood a few weeks before. They at once exclaimed, That is the Lost Crow, the great brave who has killed so many of our enemies. He is our brother. This threw the whole village into commotion. Old and young were impatient to obtain a sight of the great brave. Orders were immediately given to summon all the old women taken by the Shai'ans at the time of their captivity so many winters past, who had suffered the loss of a son at that time. The lodge was cleared for the examining committee, and the old women, breathless with excitement, their eyes wild and protruding, and their nostrils dilated, arrived in squads, until the lodge was filled to overflowing. I believe never was mortal gazed at with such intense and sustained interest as I was on that occasion. Arms and legs were critically scrutinized. My face next passed the ordeal, then my neck, back, breast, and all parts of my body, even down to my feet, which did not escape the examination of these anxious matrons in their endeavors to discover some mark or peculiarity whereby to recognize their brave son. At length, one old woman, after having scanned my visage with the utmost intentness, came forward and said, If this is my son, he has a mole over one of his eyes. My eyelids were immediately pulled down to the utmost stretch of their elasticity, when, sure enough, she discovered a mole just over my left eye. Then, and oh then, such shouts of joy as were uttered by that honest-hearted woman were seldom before heard, while all in the crowd took part in her rejoicing. It was uncultivated joy, but not the less heartfelt and intense. It was a joy which a mother can only experience when she recovers a son whom she had supposed dead in his earliest days. She has mourned him silently through weary nights and busy days for the long space of twenty years. Suddenly he presents himself before her in robust manhood, and graced with the highest name an Indian can appreciate. It is but nature, either in the savage breast or civilized, that hails such a return with overwhelming joy, and feels the mother's undying affection awakened beyond all control. All the other claimants resigning their pretensions, I was fairly carried along by the excited crowd to the lodge of the Big Bowl who was my father. The news of my having proved to be the son of Mrs. Big Bull flew through the village with the speed of lightning, and on my arrival at the paternal lodge, I found it filled with all degrees of my newly discovered relatives, who welcomed me nearly to death. They seized me in their arms and hugged me, and my face positively burned with the enraptured kisses of my numerous fair sisters, with a long host of cousins, aunts, and other more remote kindred. 
All these welcoming ladies as firmly believed in my identity with the Lost One as they believed in the existence of the Great Spirit. My father knew me to be his son, told all the crows that the dead was alive again and the Lost One was found. He knew it was fact. Greenwood had said so, and the words of Greenwood were true. His tongue was not crooked. He would not lie. He also had told him that his son was a great brave among the white men, that his arm was strong, that the Blackfeet quailed before his rifle and battle axe, that his lodge was full of their scalps, which his knife had taken, that they must rally around me to support and protect me, and that his long-lost son would be a strong breastwork to their nation and he would teach them how to defeat their enemies. They all promised that they would do as his words had indicated. My unmarried sisters were four in number, very pretty, intelligent young women. They, as soon as the departure of the crowd would admit, took off my old leggings and moccasins and other garments and supplied their place with new ones most beautifully ornamented according to their very last fashion. My sisters were very ingenious in such work, and they well-nigh quarreled among themselves for the privilege of dressing me. When my toilet was finished to their satisfaction, I could compare in elegance with the most popular warrior of the tribe when in full costume. They also prepared me a bed, not so high as Haman's gallows, certainly, but just as high as the lodge would admit. This was also a token of their esteem and sisterly affection. While conversing to the extent of my ability with my father in the evening, and affording him full information respecting the white people, their great cities, their numbers, their power, their opulence, he suddenly demanded of me if I wanted a wife thinking, no doubt, that if he got me married, I should lose all discontent and forego any wish of returning to the whites. I assented, of course. Very well, said he. You shall have a pretty wife, and a good one. Away he strode to the lodge of one of the greatest braves, and asked one of his daughters of him to bestow upon his son who the chief must have heard was also a great brave. The consent of the parent was readily given. The name of my prospective father-in-law was Black Lodge. He had three very pretty daughters, whose names were Stillwater, Blackfish, and Three Roads. Even the untutored daughters of the wild woods need a little time to prepare for such an important event but long and tedious courtships are unknown among them. The ensuing day, the three daughters were brought to my father's lodge by their father, and I was requested to take my choice. Stillwater was the eldest, and I liked her name. If it was emblematic of her disposition, she was the woman I should prefer. Stillwater, accordingly, was my choice. They were all superbly attired in garments which must have cost them months of labor. 
which garments the young women ever keep in readiness against such an interesting occasion as the present. The acceptance of my wife was the completion of the ceremony, and I was again a married man, as sacredly in their eyes as if the holy Christian church had fastened the irrevocable knot upon us. Among the Indians, the daughter receives no patrimony on her wedding day, and her mother and father never pass a word with the son-in-law after, a custom religiously observed among them, though for what reason I never learned. The other relatives are under no such restraint. My brothers made me a present of twenty as fine horses as any in the nation, all trained war horses. I was also presented with all the arms and instruments requisite for an Indian campaign. My wife's deportment coincided with her name. She would have reflected honor upon many a civilized household. She was affectionate, obedient, gentle, cheerful, and, apparently, quite happy. No domestic thunderstorms, no curtain lectures ever disturbed the serenity of our connubial lodge. I speedily formed acquaintance with all my immediate neighbors, and the Morning Star, which was the name conferred upon me on my recognition as the lost son, was soon a companion to all the young warriors in the village. No power on earth could have shaken their faith in my positive identity with the lost son. Nature seemed to prompt the old woman to recognize me as her missing child, and all my new relatives placed implicit faith in the genuineness of her discovery. Greenwood had spoken it, and his tongue was not crooked. What could I do under the circumstances? Even if I should deny my crow origin, they would not believe me. How could I dash with an unwelcome and incredible explanation all the joy that had been manifested on my return? The cordial welcome, the rapturous embraces of those who hailed me as a son and a brother, the exuberant joy of the whole nation for the return of a long lost crow who, stolen when a child, had returned in the strength of maturity, graced with the name of a great brave, and the generous strife I had occasioned in their endeavors to accord me the warmest welcome? I could not find it in my heart to undeceive these unsuspecting people and tear myself away from their untutored caresses. Thus I commenced my Indian life with the crows. I said to myself, I can trap in their streams unmolested and derive more profit under their protection than if among my own men, exposed incessantly to assassination and alarm. I therefore resolved to abide with them, to guard my secret, to do my best in their company, and in assisting them to subdue their enemies. There was but one recollection troubled me, and that was my lonely one in St. Louis. My thoughts were constantly filled with her. I knew my affection was reciprocated, and that her fond heart beat alone for me, that my promise was undoubtingly confided in, 
and that prayers were daily offered for my safety, thus distant in the mountains, exposed to every peril. Repeatedly I would appoint a day for my return, but some unexpected event would occur and thrust my resolution aside. Still I hoped, for I had accumulated the means of wealth sufficient to render us comfortable through life. A fortunate return was all I awaited to consummate my ardent anticipation of happiness and render me the most blessed of mortals. Before proceeding farther with my Indian life, I will conduct the reader back to our camp the evening succeeding to my disappearance from Bridger. He was on the hill, crossing over to me as agreed upon, when he saw me in the hands of the Indians being conducted to their village, which was also in sight. Seeing clearly that he could oppose no resistance to my captors, he made all speed to the camp and communicated the painful news of my death. He had seen me in the charge of a whole host of Cheyennes who were conducting me to camp, there to sacrifice me in the most improved manner their savage propensities could suggest and then abandoned themselves to a general rejoicing over the fall of a white man. With the few men he had in camp, it was hopeless to attempt a rescue, for judging by the size of the village, there must be a community of several thousand Indians. All were plunged in gloom. All pronounced my funeral eulogy. All my daring encounters were spoken of to my praise. My fortunate escapes, my repeated victories were applauded in memory of me. The loss of their best hunter, of their kind and ever-obliging friend, was deeply deplored by all. Alas, had it not been for that lamented quarrel, they exclaimed, he would still have been among us. Poor Jim, peace to his ashes. Bridger lamented that he had advised me to leave the camp, and again that he had separated from me at the forks. If we had kept together, he murmured, his fate might have been prevented, for doubtless one of us would have seen the Indians in time to have escaped. Thus, as I was afterward informed by some of the party, was my memory celebrated in that forlorn camp. Farther, Having conceived a deep disgust at that vicinity, they moved their camp to the headwaters of the Yellowstone, leaving scores of beaver unmolested in the streams. The faithful fellows little thought that, while they were lamenting my untimely fall, I was being hugged and kissed to death by a whole lodge full of near and dear crow relatives, and that I was being welcomed with a public reception fully equal in intensity, though not in extravagance, to that accorded to the victor of Waterloo on his triumphal entry into Paris. Bridger had never supposed that the Indians whom he saw leading me away were crows, he being ignorant that he was so near their territory. His impression was that these were Cheyennes, hence I was given up for dead and reported so to others. My death was communicated to the rendezvous when the fall hunt was over, and there was a general time of mourning in mountain style. 
I say mountain style, in contradistinction to the manner of civilized circles, because with them, when the death of a comrade is deplored, his good deeds alone are celebrated. His evil ones are interred with his bones. Modern politics have introduced the custom of perpetuating all that is derogatory to a man's fair fame and burying in deep oblivion all that was honorable and praiseworthy. Hence I say, give me the mountaineer, despite all the opprobrium that is cast upon his name, for in him you have a man of chivalrous feeling, ready to divide his last morsel with his distressed fellow, ay, and to yield the last drop of his blood to defend the life of his friend. End of chapter 12